We are continuing our series in uh, Nehemiah. Normally, I go verse by verse. Uh, in this case, I am summarizing a chapter, chapter 3. Someone made the statement, coming together is a beginning, thinking together is unity, staying together is progress, and then working together is success. Working together as in teamwork, is success. The reason is because we are able to do things together that we aren't able to do separately. The classic case of that from nature are the geese going south for the winter, and we see this happening here. Geese fly in a strategic V formation, and in doing that, create at least a 72% advantage in speed and range compared to what each bird would be able to do on its own apart from that group. The reason that's aerodynamically possible is because the movement of each bird's wings creates uplift for the bird behind it. Once the lead goose gets tired, it rotates back into the formation, and then another goose moves up into the lead position until he's tired, and then another goose replaces him. The point is, if simple geese can work together to reach a common goal, then there's no reason we cannot do the same thing, and we can if we would coordinate our efforts. The fourth organizational principle that Nehemiah has incorporated into the reconstruction of Jerusalem was the coordination principle. The coordination principle. This past Sunday morning, we discussed the first three principles of Nehemiah's organizational scheme. Those three principles were simplification, delegation, and participation. Simplification, delegation, and participation. And that message is on our website. This morning, though, we're going to finish this section and comment on principles four and five. And the fourth principle is, as we just said, the coordination principle. Notice the definition. The word coordinate means to arrange in a correct order, to place into a proper sequence, and to synchronize. Nehemiah utilized this principle in coordinating Jerusalem's reconstruction project. Notice Nehemiah 3, verse 2. Next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built... And next to them, Zachor, the son of Emery, built. Then verse 4, And next to them, Mirmoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Koz, made repairs. Next to them, Meshalem, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezebel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, made repairs. Uh, these are difficult to pronounce names. And these names, and more of them, are the reason I have neglected to read the entire chapter. It's brutal. <laughs> now, notice these phrases throughout this section. Next to him, after him, after them. Those same phrases are mentioned some 28 times throughout this chapter. Those phrases are mentioned in 21 of the 32 total verses in Nehemiah 3. Those phrases describe the coordination that has been integrated into this project. In order to coordinate all this construction, Nehemiah put the people to work 
in their own assigned locations. Nehemiah had an assigned location and an assigned job for each person that was a part of this reconstruction. Question, how did he do that? Nehemiah used two specific strategies in assigning people a particular location, location meaning a particular section on this wall to work on. Strategy one, Nehemiah assigned work locations according to residence, according to someone's residence. This particular strategy is found in verses 21 through 24. 21 mentions from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. Verse 22, and after him, the priest, the men of the plain made repairs. Verse 23, after him, Benjamin and Hashab made repairs opposite their house. After them, Azariah made repairs by his house. Verse 24, after him, Binui repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress. A buttress is a projecting support made of stone or brick that is built against the wall. Notice that over and over, Nehemiah assigned locations according to residence. He gave these people a section of the wall to build that was right near their home. Now, that wasn't always possible. But where it was, that's what Nehemiah did. There were three reasons Nehemiah wanted to assign people responsibilities according to residence. One, people that were assigned sections of the wall near their homes would be more personally involved and as a result would be more highly motivated. If someone was assigned a part of the wall to rebuild that was going to protect his own house, then he would go to extraordinary lengths to be certain that it was done right. He had a vested interest in that wall, since that wall or that section of that wall protected his own house. Assigning sections near residences helped ensure that each person would put his absolute best effort into what he was doing. Second, people would not have to travel to another part of the city to do a job which would have wasted valuable time. Remember, there was no rapid transit system in 445 B.C. Jerusalem. There was no muni bus system, no subway train. There were no freeways. Commuting would have been a very time-consuming process. That problem was eliminated, though, um, when the people were assigned a section of the wall near their home. Someone would get up in the morning, step outside, and instantly he was on the job. Third, in case of an attack, people would not be tempted to leave their post, mean abandon their assigned location, but would stay and protect their families and homes. One commentator said, by arranging for each man to work close to his own home, Nehemiah made it easy for them to get to work to be sustained while on the job, and to safeguard those who were nearest and dearest to them. That relieved each worker of any unnecessary anxiety. So that was a smart tactic, a tactical move on the part of Nehemiah to assign people a section of this reconstruction project right near their own home. I might interject a footnote. Notice if we read through this entire section, Nehemiah's name is never mentioned once. 
in Nehemiah 3. He's never mentioned. And that's because he was probably doing what author Tom Peters calls MBWA. MBWA is a, an acronym meaning management by walking around. Management by walking around. Nehemiah was just walking around this enormous wall under reconstruction. He was inspecting the project. He was supervising and he was encouraging the people. <clears throat> Don't miss this. <clears throat> People do what we inspect, not just what we expect. People do what we inspect and not just what we expect. And so Nehemiah was doing management by walking around, constantly inspecting this construction project to see that it was being done as it should have been done. Strategy two. Nehemiah assigned work locations according to vocation, meaning according to someone's profession. Nehemiah assigned people to designated areas on the wall that related to their specific vocation. For instance, verse 1, we just read, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priest, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. This is interesting. Eliashib, the high priest, and his brothers, who were also priests, were assigned the job of rebuilding the sheep gate. Question, why was it that those men and not other men assigned to that sheep gate? The reason is that the sheep gate was the specific gate where the animals were brought into the temple for sacrifice. The priests were the ones who actually sacrificed those animals, and so the priests knew and understood this area better than anyone else. So they were the logical persons to rebuild this section of the wall and gate. In essence, this area was part of their ministerial jurisdiction. So Nehemiah assigned them the job of rebuilding this sheep gate. That particular strategy um, helped the people take ownership of what they were assigned to do. Those priests would have been upset if that sheep gate reconstruction had been assigned to someone else. Those men would have argued oh, uh, that part of the wall affects us the most. So we should be the ones to take care of that, and we will. Don't miss this. That means in order to achieve maximum production, Nehemiah had people doing what they could do best. Nehemiah, in order to achieve maximum success on this project. He had people doing what people could do best. Nehemiah didn't have carpenters laying brick. He had brick masons laying brick. He didn't have iron workers cutting wood. He had carpenters cutting wood. Nehemiah assigned responsibilities according to their vocations and expertise. Because someone's vocation would have been something that he was both gifted at and had been trained to do. In order to coordinate this project, Nehemiah wanted his people to fit together in a synchronized unit, so he assigned them specific responsibilities that would utilize their unique skills and abilities. I see this same principle as an integral part of the organization and function of the church. Notice Romans 12. In this particular passage, Paul is using the configuration of the human body to describe the church as a spiritual body. Remember that in a figurative sense, throughout the New Testament, the church is spoken of as a spiritual brotherhood, a spiritual building, a spiritual bride, 
and a spiritual body. The church is described in a metaphorical sense as a brotherhood, a building, a bride, and a body. And it is mentioned as a body more often than the other metaphors. And each sincere Christian is an actual member of that spiritual body. Paul was primarily using the word church in a more generic sense, and not necessarily in the sense of an individualized particular local congregation as we are. But what he says does relate to us. Paul is illustrating here that the church exists as a unified organism that is also diverse, just as our bodies are. Paul wants us to understand that the church is an entirely unified spiritual organism that is also diverse in how it functions. Notice Romans 12, verse 4. For as we have many members in one body, meaning our bodies have many components, many parts, many appendages, but not, but notice, but all the members do not have the same function. We understand that. The eye does not do what the foot can do. The ear does not do what the hand can do. Each member of our bodies have a different function. Verse 5, So we, being many, are one body in Christ. This is the church. The church as a spiritual body. And individually members of one another. Verse 6, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. Each Christian has spiritual gifts, plural. Um, we have those gifts in differing percentages, but we, so we have a unique gift combination or gift mix, and God has given each of us different gifts, and we are to use them, not set them on the shelf, to use them. And since each member of this body has a different function in the body, then we are given gifts that fit that particular function. Understanding that, Paul itemizes seven different spiritual gifts. If prophecy, prophecy throughout the Old Testament consisting of a revelatory component or predicting and most often preaching. Now we use prophecy to mean preaching. If prophecy or preaching, let us prophesy or preach in proportion to our faith. Verse 7, or ministry. Ministering is the same as serving. All Christians are to serve, but there is a special, unique gift called serving. Let, it, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. Verse 8, he who exhorts. This exhorting is encouraging in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. That the church is unified is represented in the fact that it is one cohesive spiritual entity. Not two or three entities, but one entity called a body. But its diverse nature is seen in the fact that this one body has numerous members and each of those members have a different function. So not everyone does the same thing. In using the analogy of the human body, that means if, if someone pulls off a superb athletic performance, as we assume will happen in February 
at the Winter Olympics, which I am going to boycott because it's in China. Sorry, I'm not going to watch. But I know there'll be some amazing feats, athletic feats performed there. And if that happens, it is because hundreds of muscles, tendons, ligaments, nerves, and specific body parts are all acting together in an incredible coordinated effort. Each actual anatomical member does what it was created to do in complete synchronization with each other member. That should also happen in the church. Each member of this congregation is uniquely gifted so as to fulfill a specific function. And as we use our gifts and our abilities in coordination with each other, then together we are able to do something special for God. The problem I see in the church, though, is that we have people in our congregations doing stuff that they weren't cut out to do. God never intended for them to do, which in turn creates a disjointed effort instead of a coordinated one. I have seen people uh, volunteer to drive the church van and can't negotiate a turn without running over the curb. I have heard a soloist from the worship team that emits a sound similar to a grandma seizure. Uh, I have seen some church secretaries um, that are all thumbs on the computer keyboard. There are Sunday school teachers. Uh, the U.S. Drug Administration would label a verbal sedative. Uh, some nur- nursery workers are meaner than a junkyard dog. Now, these are just cla- classy cases of sincere self-deceived, misplaced persons, individuals that are out of sync, good people that love Jesus, and we should appreciate their effort, but these people are in the wrong place, in the wrong position, and doing for them the wrong thing. I read an analogy from Charles Swindoll that illustrates the frustration of being required to do something we weren't created to do. Once upon a time, the animals decided they should do something meaningful in order to meet the problems of the new world. So these animals organized a school and adopted an activity curriculum of running, climbing, swimming, and flying. Then to make it easier to administrate that curriculum, someone suggested that all of the animals take all of the subjects. Bad, bad, bad idea. The duck was excellent in swimming. In fact, he was better than the instructor. But as a duck, he barely made passing grades in flying, and he was very poor in running. Uh, Since he was slow in running, he had to drop swimming class and stay after school to practice running. All that running caused his webbed feet to become badly worn, so that now he was only average in swimming. But that average was quite acceptable, so nobody worried about that except the duck. The rabbit started at the top of his class in running, but he developed a nervous twitch in his leg muscles because of so much makeup work in swimming. The squirrel was excellent in climbing, but he encountered constant frustration in flying class because the teacher made him start from the ground up instead of from the tree top down. He developed charley horses from overexertion, and he only got a C in climbing and a D in running. The eagle was a chronic problem child. 
and was severely disciplined for being a nonconformist. In climbing classes, he had beat all the others to the top of the tree, but he always insisted on using his own technique to get there. And the story goes on and on. The moral of this story is a simple one. Each creature has its own set of capabilities in which it will naturally excel unless it is expected or forced to fill a mold that it doesn't fit. When that happens, frustration, discouragement, and even guilt bring overall mediocrity or complete defeat. A duck is a duck, and only a duck. A duck is built to swim, not to run or fly, and certainly not to climb. A squirrel is a squirrel, and only a squirrel. To move a squirrel out of its forte, which is climbing, and then expect it to swim or fly, will drive a squirrel nuts. Pardon the pun. Eagles are fantastic creatures in the air, but not in a foot race. The rabbit would win easily every time, unless, of course, the eagle gets hungry. Christian, if God made you a saint, duck, you're a duck saint, then you're a duck. Accept that. Swim like crazy, like ducks can. But don't get bent out of shape because you waddle when you run or flap instead of fly. Be content being the person God created you to be. Don't attempt to be someone else. If you aren't going to be you, then who is going to be you? Be content doing what God created you to do. Don't try to do what someone else does. Don't pretend to use a gift you weren't given. Part of our problem is some of this self-imposed frustration that we feel in our wanting to be someone that we aren't and our wanting to do something that God never intended for us to do. Let me suggest something. And I have seen this uh, throughout my career. We are probably the poorest evaluators of our own abilities. We are probably the poorest evaluators of our own abilities. No matter who we are, we are probably not a good judge of our own abilities. We probably have a different opinion of ourselves and our abilities than is reality. Question, how does someone know if he or she is gifted at a particular something? Answer, if we actually have a particular gift, and start using that gift, then God will use people around us to confirm to us that we are gifted in that particular area. If there is no confirmation from others, then there is a strong probability that we don't have that particular gift. For instance, I'm going to personalize this. I have met hundreds and hundreds of pastors, and I am convinced most of them secretly feel as though it is entirely possible that they could be the reincarnation of the famous 19th century pastor Charles Spurgeon. I mean, down on the inside would never admit it aloud, but on the inside most of them would consider themselves outstanding pulpiteers. Now, in some cases, though, these men preach and people stay away in droves. And those that do attend services where these men preach, not wanting to hurt the pastor's feelings, feel compelled to say something positive at the door going out, such as, that message was unbelievable. Or that word unbelievable could mean, 
unbelievable good or unbelievable not so good. The true confirmation of a gift sometimes doesn't happen at the door going out, but behind closed doors where people are free or to express an authentic opinion. The congregational confirmation and divine endorsement on someone's preaching primarily comes from the spiritual impact it has on people's thinking and the changes it affects in them. Not just from nice things people sometimes say to the pastor as they go out the door. And I'm learning that most pastors now don't stand at the door and greet people as they go out. I'm old school. I do. I would suggest that after exercising a supposed gift, if we're not getting a confirmation from God per the congregation, then it might be that what we're doing, even though we want to do it, what we're doing is not our thing. And God hasn't gifted us in that area. Don't be self-deceived. Put ego on the shelf and be honest. Just be who God wants us to be and do what God wants us to do. It's frustrating enough doing that, let alone putting ourselves into another position God had never intended for us to have. For instance, if our elder board announced to me, Pastor, we feel strongly that you need to set aside minimum 10 hours per week for counseling, personal counseling. Now that has happened on rare occasion but not on a consistent basis because if that were a requirement then I'd be a dead man in a month. I'd be sitting there attempting to be compassionate listening to people's problems hour after hour after hour. I mean people come into my office and sort of regurgitate all this mess on my desk. I'd be sorting through all of this stuff and then at some point my mind would just say enough and my mind would have left the room. I mean I'm sitting there listening but my body's here but my mind is absent. I do counsel but I am not a gifted counselor and to be forced into that role would only cause me severe frustration. There are some some specific questions we need to ask ourselves in order to see just where we might fit. Question one, do my spiritual gifts and or abilities fit what I'm doing? Each of us have spiritual gifts that are unique to us, so does our particular unique gift combination fit what we are attempting to do. Second, do my strengths fit into what I'm doing? Strengths might range from personality strengths to physical attributes to intellectual abilities. Do those strengths fit into what I'm doing? Three, does my educational background and training fit into what I'm doing? Number four, do my experiences, meaning my life experiences, fit into what I'm doing? Five, do I love to do what I'm doing? Do I love to do what I'm doing? Now, pastoring is a love-hate thing. I'm sorry. It, it just is. Uh, Fortunately, it's more love than hate, but parts of it I hate, I admit. If I, if I don't find satisfaction in fulfillment in what I'm doing, then I should probably consider doing something else. Six, do I do well at what I'm doing? Do I do well at what I'm doing? Then a related question, seven, do others think 
I do well at what I'm doing. That is critical. That means do I receive a confirmation from other Christians on what I'm doing? Number eight, do others have different opinions about what I'm good at? That means, don't miss this, do other people think I'm good at what I think I'm good at? That's critical. Number nine, do I have definite areas where I'm seeing obvious personal growth? And do those areas fit into what I am doing? Number ten, do I have definite areas where I have succeeded in the past? And do those areas fit into what I am doing now? We need to be more honest with ourselves. Be who God created us to be and do what God intended for us to do. Nehemiah understood that. Nehemiah didn't want to frustrate people, putting them into situations where they had no business being. That's the reason that where he could, where it was possible, he assigned people positions and responsibilities on that construction site according to their own residence and according to their own profession. Each person was given his own assigned place to be and his own assigned job to do. Nehemiah's men and women were coordinated and functioned together like a machine. And this is part of the reason that entire wall, remember the diagram from last time, that entire Jerusalem wall was completed in just 52 days. Spiritual leaders need to learn this important lesson from Nehemiah. Help people determine what they are gifted at, doing and enjoy most. And then match those people to ministries which in turn enable them to maximize on their abilities and in coordination together achieve something special for God. Number five, the fifth and final principle is the commendation principle. The commendation principle. Nehemiah was a legitimate people person. In just 32 verses, Nehemiah mentions some 75 different individuals' names, most of which, as I said, I am unable to pronounce. Still, these names are there. The reason Nehemiah mentioned those names was, in part, in part, that he was commending these individuals for doing a good job. Nehemiah motivated his men through personal and public recognition. He recognized those persons that helped in this wall's reconstruction. He recognized their individual achievements so much so that these guys made it onto the pages of Holy Scripture. There is no higher recognition than that. These men's names are mentioned in the Bible. Something none of us can say about ourselves. And just this simple personal recognition and commendation from Nehemiah encouraged the people enough to do more than they otherwise would have done. Nehemiah practiced this commendation principle. If someone had done his best on the section he'd been assigned to, then Nehemiah commended him. He praised him for his efforts. He didn't take his performance for granted. Solomon also believed in the benefits of commendation. Proverbs 12 Verse 25, anxiety in the heart of a man causes depression. That is a clinical truism. But a good word, meaning an encouraging word, a commendation, makes it, makes the heart glad. 
Proverbs 25, verse 11. A word fitly spoken, meaning an appropriate word of encouragement, is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Proverbs 16, verse 24. Pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the bones. Everyone can benefit from commendation. The point of these passages is that there is enormous intrinsic value in commending someone. I see a problem though, and I have been guilty of this, that in some management types, people that supervise people, expect their people to resemble the energizer bunny and just keep going and going and going and going. The problem is that the energizer bunny is a mechanical device devoid of feeling. And humans aren't. Humans need to have their emotional batteries charged and charged often. As Christians, we ought to commend one another more often than we do. Some of us are so anxious to mention a mistake someone has made. And then if the same person does something positive and beneficial, then we forget to say something to them. There are children who almost never hear from a parent unless it is to criticize them. Some children have never heard, good job, son. That was an excellent effort. You did so much better this semester. I am so proud of you. Some children have never heard those words. Instead, more often than not, it is something such as, is that all you could do? I can't believe you couldn't do better than that. I just can't believe that. You are a disappointment, son. There's this tendency to criticize instead of commend. One of the reasons we ought to be more anxious to commend someone is that commending encourages them to be more and to do more. Remember, a pat on the back can do more than a kick in the seat of the pants. A parent that tells a child, you can't do anything right. It's not unrelated to child abuse. Only God knows the number of children that feel useless and inadequate because a parent never commended them, never encouraged them for anything. I was one of those children. I never heard words of commendation or encouragement from my parents. Never heard those words until I was an adult. Dallas Theological Seminary, Professor Howard Hendricks had a first semester student that came to him and just wanted to hang it up and go home. Now this student had received his undergraduate degree from one of the prestigious Ivy League universities. All of them have very high standards for enrollment. He had a legitimate genius IQ something I cannot relate to. After hearing that he would be attending Dallas Seminary, one of the department heads at his former secular university said, quote, I have never seen a more gifted student. It is a shame to see him waste his mind on the ministry. He was brilliant. But after just one semester at seminary, this incredibly bright student wanted to quit. And Dr. Hendricks was baffled and said, I don't understand. I don't get it. Why would you want to throw in the towel? And this student said, Prof, 
because I don't think I have what it takes academically to make the grades. Professor Hendricks said, Son, listen to me. If you don't have what it takes, then please tell me who does. After further investigation into the past, it seems that as a child, if he had scored a 99 on an exam, instead of congratulating him, his father wanted to know where the other point was. His father often called him stupid and dummy and idiot. And as a result of that verbal abuse, although in a technical sense he was an actual genius, he never thought of himself as being intellectually gifted at all. Because the most significant person in his life, meaning his father, never told him that he was bright and never commended him for anything. How sad is that? That's played out, I'm sure, in millions of homes. Dr. Hans Finzel is a successful author and speaker and recognized authority on the subject of leadership. For two decades, he served as president of an international nonprofit called World Venture, operated in 65 countries. I have his best-selling book in my office called The Top Ten Mistakes Leaders Make. He has taught leadership on five continents. Even though his schedule is on overload most of the time, his personal goal, get this, his personal goal is to each day jot down some words of kindness, commendation, and encouragement to someone and then either send them that note or hand it to that person. Compare that practice of commending others to this infamous quotation from someone that never did fully understand this principle. He said, quote, You can do much more using a kind word and a gun than you can just using a kind word. That infamous line came from notorious gangster Al Capone. It seems Mr. Capone never did understand the value of commendation and the impact of just using kind words. Commendation motivates people, encourages people, inspires people to do more than they otherwise would do. People, that's the reason in sports there is such a thing as home field advantage. That's the reason Nehemiah commended his labor force on the outstanding job those people were doing on the wall. Helen P. Marosla was a nun, a teaching nun. She taught in a Catholic school. She told about her experience with Mark Eklund, a student she had in third grade and then had once more in a junior high math class. And even non-Catholics, such as ourselves, should appreciate this. This nun said, these are her, her words, one Friday in the classroom, things just didn't feel right. We had worked hard on a new concept all week, and the students were frowning, frustrated with themselves, and edgy with one another. I had to stop this crankiness before it got out of hand, so I asked them to list the names of the other students in the room on two sheets of paper. I told them to leave a space between each name. Then I told them to think of the nicest thing 
the most positive thing they could say about each of their classmates and then write that thing and or things down on those papers. It took the remainder of that class period to finish the assignment. But as the students left the room, each one handed me their papers. That Saturday, I wrote down the name of each student on a separate piece of paper, meaning a piece of paper, one paper per student. And then I listed what everyone else in the class had said about that person. In class on Monday, I gave each student his or her list. Some of them consisted of two entire pages. Before long, the entire class was sitting there smiling. I heard students whispering, Wow, I had no idea. I didn't know. I never knew that I meant anything to someone else. I had no idea people liked me so much. But after that initial reaction, the students put those papers away, and no one ever mentioned them in class again. I never knew if they discussed them with each other after class or discussed them with their parents, but it didn't matter. The exercise had achieved its purpose. The students were happy with themselves and one another once again, and all of them were encouraged. In time, that group of students moved on. Some years after that, one summer I had returned from a vacation. My parents met me at the airport. As we were driving home, my mother asked the usual questions about the trip, how the weather was, and my experiences in general. And then there was a slight lull in the conversation. My mother gave my father a sideways glance and said, Dad, my father cleared his throat and said, The Elklands, the Ecklands, called last night. Oh, really, I said. I haven't heard from them for some time. I wonder how Mark is. My father responded quietly. Mark was just killed in Vietnam. He paused. The funeral's tomorrow, and his parents would like very much if you could attend. Sister Helen said, To this day, I can still point to the exact spot on Interstate 494, where Dad told me about Mark. I had never seen a serviceman in a military coffin before, and this was Mark. The church was packed with Mark's friends. His former classmate Chuck's sister sang the Battle Hymn of the Republic. I thought, why did it have to rain on the day of the funeral? It was difficult enough just being at the gravesite. The pastor said the usual remarks, and prayers, and the bugler played taps. And then one by one, those who loved Mark took a last walk by the coffin. I was the very last person to pay my respects at the coffin. As I stood there, one of the soldiers who acted as a pallbearer came up to me and said, Were you Mark's math teacher? I nodded yes. As I continued to stare at the coffin, he said, Mark talked about you a lot. Then after the funeral, most of Mark's former classmates headed to Chuck's farmhouse for lunch. Mark's mother and father were there, obviously waiting for me. We want to show you something, his father said. Taking a wallet out of his pocket, they actually found this on Mark when he was killed. We thought that you might recognize it. 
Opening the billfold, he carefully removed two worn pieces of notebook paper that had been taped and folded and refolded many times. I knew instantly, without even looking at the papers, that they were the ones on which I had listed all the good things and positive things each of Mark's classmates had said about him. Mark's mother said, thank you so much for doing that. As you can see, Mark treasured it. Then Mark's classmates, sensing what was happening, started to gather around us. Chuck smiled rather sheepishly and said, I still have my list. It's in the top drawer of my desk at home. John's wife said, John asked me to put his list in our wedding album. I have mine too, Marilyn said. It's in my diary. Then Vicky, another classmate, reached into her pocketbook, took out her wallet, and showed her worn and fragile list to the group. I carry this with me at all times, Vicky said, without batting an eyelash. I actually think we all saved our list. And that's when I finally sat down and cried. Please don't forget these words. If you feel that commendation, some praise, some encouragement is due someone, then now, now is the time to share it because that person can't read his obituary after he's dead. I want us to stand to our feet, would we? Stand to our feet and our heads are bowed. As we close our time in prayer, I do hope you'll stop at the table and see Gail, pick up a baby bottle or two. Please look into the mobile unit outside. And gentlemen, sign up for the breakfast. Father in heaven, this is serious matter. Um, I am guilty so often of taking for granted the effort so many have exerted for your name here in this congregation. There are men right now, they started yesterday, working so hard <clears throat> to redo a woman's bathroom. She has six small children, and she didn't have a bathroom. It just was beyond repair, and they're completely gutting it and redoing it. And I thank you for those men and their commitment to help and serve like that. And Father, there are so many who do so much and I, God, I just pray that I will be more grateful, more conscious of their efforts and their labor and will extend to them more often than I do commendation and encouragement and more pats on the back because we can do nothing alone. We need each other. And yes, together, if we're working together, we can be successful. So I pray, God, that you will have used this sermon to make a difference. Some of us have some homework to do. We need to make... Maybe send someone an email today or send someone a text today or a phone call today or maybe drop them a letter or something and just say, listen, I want you to know I appreciate you and all that you do and I just want to tell you how much you mean to me and encourage them. Everybody, everybody needs encouragement. So God, use this message to speak to our hearts. Help it to make a difference in each of us, I pray. And I ask it all in the name of your special son, Jesus. Amen and amen. God bless you, and you are dismissed.